Hello, beautiful people. Thank you very much for joining me again. As always, Mac Engel, Fort Worth Star-Telegram, Engel, Engel podcast, just in case there was some confusion about that. Now, before I introduce, uh, I got a scratch here on my ankle. Before I introduce my guest for this episode, I have something that I need to get off my chest. It's not the excessive amount of hair God gave me. And I swear to God, I don't want to get off a tangent here, but I'm going to. If I lose my hair from my head and keep the rest that adorns this Greek physique, I'm suing the Almighty, and I will win. I would win that class action lawsuit, and you know it. There is not a judge nor a jury on this planet that would rule against me, against God, about hair loss. I don't know if it's going to happen, but I just, I've got to be forward thinking. And what I really wanted to whine about is, I have a friend of mine, they're going through a hard time in their relationships, and as uh, they air their encyclopedia of grievances against their significant other, they will say, you know, I, I know I made mistakes. I know I'm not perfect. I know I'm not perfect. That says everything while saying nothing. The sentence is, yeah, hey, I, I know I'm a pain in the ass. Or, uh, you know, I, I know, I know I can be difficult. And my favorite is, well, hey, I know I'm not perfect. They sound good. They do. They sound good. But if you really listen, they're just empty bags of words designed to admit fault without being specific. Okay? So you know you're a pain in the ass. Okay? You know you're difficult or can be difficult. And you know you're not perfect. It's great. That's great. That's good that you can say those sentences. God knows I've said them because they're all true. But really, those sentences, I know I'm not perfect, etc. Those sentences are really nothing more than empty verbal bouquets of roses that die the second you put them in the water. And we all know how roses smell when they go bad. Worse than a week old diaper. If you're going to really get into it and say that you know you're a pain in the ass, if you're really going to get into it and say, yeah, yeah, I, hey, man, I know I'm difficult. If you're really going to get into it and say, oh, I, hey, I'm not perfect. You've got to be specific. Admissions like, well, I know I'm not perfect. That's the whole idea of getting you off the hook in whatever situation that you find yourself in. You've got to be specific of how you are a pain in the ass. You've got to be specific of how you are difficult. Get real about your imperfections. Because when you do get real, then you might get to the point of origin of your latest whatever. Probably something that isn't great. Because if you are Specific, it gives you a puncher's chance of correcting whatever behavior that is a pain in the ass. 
Now, you may not want to alter the behavior. That's a, that's a choice, and that's a different set of circumstances, and all choices do have consequences. But getting specific about these imperfections, pain in the ass, and things like that, brutal. Hell on earth. Murderous, even. Maybe harder than anything that you've ever done. Because it just absolutely sucks to let, sit there and look in a mirror and admit the specifics of your pain in the astom. It really sucks to sit there and look in a camera or a mirror and admit to the specifics and the whys and the hows of your flaws. If you're going to get any better, you can't just say, Ugh, no, I'm not perfect. Or I know I'm a pain in the ass. Or I know I can be difficult. If you're specific, it gives you a chance to address them. Those specifics. I know I'm always late. I know I say things I shouldn't say. Now, if you're specific about it, and if you want to be, then the other person that you're dealing with has the chance to know what you're dealing with, know what you're trying to correct, and what is potentially coming. All right, that ends my little lecture. I'm not going to charge you anything for that. My guest for this episode is the granddaughter of one of the most famous professional athletes of the entire 20th century. She is Lindsay Berra, and her grandfather is the late catcher of the New York Yankees, the great Yogi Berra. You might know his name. Played for a little bit, decent player. There are few athletes of the 20th century who are better at their job, better at their position and their sport than Yogi Berra. His list of achievements on the field as a player is almost too long to even comprehend. So I'm not going to try here in my little opening monologue. The guy did everything a baseball player could do in a career, everything. But his achievements were almost lost somewhere in this package and a personality and a persona that all became something that overshadowed a life and a career, an amazing life, an even more incredible career. He served in World War II and landed on the Normandy beaches before he went to play for the New York Yankees before he became one of the very best at his position and one of the very, maybe the very best catcher in the history of baseball. Apologies to Pudge Rodriguez, apologies to Johnny Bench, and a lot of other great players too. They might even agree. Unfortunately, we lost Yogi in 2015. And a few years later, his granddaughter, Lindsay, was approached about potentially helping with a documentary about his life. She eventually joined on as an, as an executive producer and serves as the narrator of the new 90-minute film titled, It Ain't Over. You might recognize that line. That was one of Yogi's many famous Yogi-isms that lives on to this day. Lindsay is a sports journalist herself, and we actually met about 20 years ago when she was working for ESPN, the magazine, covering hockey, of all things you would never have known 
that this was the granddaughter of baseball royalty. She's very modest and humble about it, but at the same time, exceptionally proud of who her grandfather was and is, even to this day. She's a total pro. She's very bright. She's very funny. Her movie is set to be released in theaters this week, all the United States, and specifically in Dallas and in Fort Worth, for at least a long, probably the foreseeable future. Ain't o it Ain't Over will be in theaters exclusively. It's a wonderful film about a man who led in an incredible life because he was aware of who he was. And he was a man who followed a very simple creed that wasn't perfect, but it was honest about the specifics. Please welcome Lindsay Barra. Lindsay, where are you these days? I'm in Jersey still. You're, no, that's not a bad thing necessarily. Uh, congratulations on your movie. That's a, Thank that's you a, so much. That's fantastic. All right. So uh, I've got a load of questions here. So, uh, and I know you have places to be because you're very important, obviously. No. So, <laughs> you know, I when, when I heard you were doing this, I remembered you as Lindsay Barra, the writer for ESPN, the magazine, because that's when I met you 875 years ago. I know it's crazy. We really look good for 875 years you old. You really do. You actually yeah, look great. Right. I look really great. I'm just being humble about it. But now you're a filmmaker. So you're a writer, filmmaker, executive producer about this new this this new documentary. Lindsay, which process is more difficult, writing or making a movie? Oh, God, they're so different. And I would say, honestly, I was involved in making this movie, but the people who know how to make movies really made this movie. Um, you know, our producer, Peter Soboloff, mm -hmm. was the person who first had the idea. He saw the Mr. Rogers documentary yeah. in June of 2018. And he, in his words, he said his wife dragged him to the theater, um, but he ended up loving it. And then the next day it was my grandfather's museum golf outing. And he said to my dad and uncles, how come there's no Mr. Rogers documentary, but about your dad? And they said, well, we don't know. No one's ever made one. And he said, well, can I? And our director, Sean Mullen, uh, Peter Soboloff, our producer, had already produced a movie with Sean. Sean. So he was an athlete and a military veteran and had that in common with my grandpa and Peter introduced him to my dad and uncles and they loved him. And then I got involved a little bit further down the road, uh, really just by peppering Sean with emails saying, you gotta get Vin Scully, you gotta get Hector Lopez, Tony Kubek, Bobby, Bobby Richardson, Bob, Bobby Brown, Audrey Garagiola, you know, these people are not young, like the, the, the clock is ticking, we gotta go. And I said, you're a Hollywood guy. You don't know them. I'm a sports writer. You need me. And that was that was how I got involved uh, from a logistical perspective. And then after being interviewed a bunch of times, I um, he, he just liked the way I talked about grandpa and, and thought it would be more interesting to have a bit of a more emotional narrator. Mm -hmm. He had originally had the idea that it was going to be Bob Costas or Billy Crystal or someone like that narrating. And he said, the producers and I have decided that you're going to be the narrator. And I'm like, that's a terrible idea. Um, but uh, I ended up being the narrator and and the executive producer. But, it, you know, I was involved, but it really was Sean Mullen, our director, Julian Robinson, our tremendous editor, um, Matt Miller and Natty, Natalie Metzger, our, our producers. Those are the folks who know how to make a movie. I did what I could, but they they made this film come to life. Lindsay. 
you referred to Yogi Berra as grandpa or granddad. What did you want or do you want people to know about your granddad that you don't think we know? Um, I think I first and foremost want people to remember that my grandfather was arguably the greatest catcher to ever play the game. And I think that there is a major recency bias. He played his last game in May of 1965. And for nearly 50 years after that, he was making commercials and managing and being quoted by the press and being quoted by presidents, you know, saying these funny things and became known as a pitch man. And I think that's what people remember because it's what happened most recently. It's in the front of their memories. And I think that part of his personality has really eclipsed what he was able to do on the baseball field. So I want people to look at those stats and we put a lot of them forward in the doc and we can talk about some of them, but like, and realize that this was a tremendous baseball player. But then at the end of the day, I also want people to understand that as great as he was on the baseball field, he was a better human being. So when I watched it and then I went to baseballreference.com and I went down that rabbit hole and I'm looking at just an amazing career but I, you mentioned recency bias, and I think with your grandfather, unlike almost any other baseball player in the history of the game, there are like these two different personalities, and I want to hear what you think. What do you think people think of when they hear the name Yogi Berra? I mean, I think if you're under the age of 55, you think of a short, funny looking guy with big ears who says funny things. If you're over the age of 55, you might think of the baseball player, but you also think of the older, funny looking little guy with the big ears who says funny things. So I, I think that most people think of him as the caricature, the cartoon, the the comedic yogi, as opposed to the baseball player yogi who won i mean they might abstractly know that he won 10 world series championships but i don't think they're thinking about him as a guy who you know caught both ends of double headers 117 times in his career who had a 148 game errorless streak who went to the plate in 1950 656 times and hit 322 with 28 home runs and 124 RBIs and only 12 strikeouts who led the Yankees in RBIs for seven straight years on teams that included Joe DiMaggio and Mickey Mantle. Um, you know, I, I love the one there's only two players in baseball history, not Yankee history, baseball history to hit more than 350 home runs with fewer than three, 500 strikeouts. And that's grandpa and Joe DiMaggio. Mm -hmm. I don't think people put grandpa in the same breath as Joe DiMaggio. And I think they should. Um, how much of your grandpa, Yogi Berra, was more myth than reality when it comes to that caricature part that you admit a lot of people know him as? I mean, I think with grandpa, really, what you saw was what you got. Mm -hmm. He was the same with the press as he was with his family. He treated the guy who delivered his mail the same as he treated the waiter in the restaurant, the same as he treated the president of the United States. Um, I think the myth part of it is that he wasn't super smart. You know, the yogiisms, a lot of people are like, oh, that's silly. 
the Yogi Bear cartoon kind of made him out to be this kind of bumbling, you know, not smart, smarter than the average bear was a was a, you know, ironic. And it, um, you know, I think the myth is that he wasn't as intelligent as he actually was, but he was a baseball genius. I mean, you hear Joe Torre and and a lot of the younger Yankees talk about the time they spent with grandpa at spring training and how grandpa would sit on the bench and notice things about baseball games that nobody else would see. He could, you know, even in his 80s, late 80s, when his dementia was pretty bad, he could still run through lineups from the late 50s and 60s and tell you how he would pitch individual batters and what they could and couldn't hit. He had this incredible capacity to retain that kind of information in his head and, and you know, the stuff we do with analytics today, um, kind of looking at how a particular hitter's bat path mass- matches up with what what kind of stuff a pitcher has. Grandpa had that all in his head and it was there his entire life. So I, I just, I think the biggest myth is that he was not as smart as he actually was. Roger Angel, I think that's who it was you interviewed. Yeah, he's very yeah, legendary baseball writer. Uh, you interview or was interviewed for the documentary. Uh, admitted, or th- I think it was he admitted that that all that that perception really bothered him, really bothered Yogi. And did you ever see that in real life? Did you, ever, Lindsay? All the times you spent with him, did that? Did you ever talk about that? Like that it got under his skin that people thought he was this sort of buffoonish, well-meaning character. I, I don't I actually don't know that it got under his skin. Grandpa, you know, when he broke into the big leagues, people were not kind to him, right? You know, they said he looked like a gorilla, he looked like an ape, he looked like he looked like a fat girl running in a too tight skirt. They said he was too ugly to be a Yankee. I don't know what that means. Could you imagine someone writing today that someone no. was too ugly to be a Yankee? Grandpa very famously said, I never saw anyone hit with his face. And I say a lot that going through World War II, um, Grandpa volunteered to join the Navy before he had a chance to be drafted. He was on a rocket boat um, off of Omaha Beach as a machine gunner, providing cover fire for our troops going ashore. And we all know what the D-Day invasion was like, that we lost a lot of soldiers on that day. And Grandpa Yogi was lucky enough to come home when so many other men did not. And I think that that gave him a tremendous amount of perspective And he was incredibly grateful for every moment he spent on this earth after that. And, you know, was very aware that he was playing a boy's game for a living, getting paid to do something he loved. And when you approach something, your life with just this profound sense of joy and gratitude, it kind of doesn't matter what everybody else thinks. Like you're there and he he's has this chance to live his life. And I I don't think he really cared what other folks were saying about him. Um, I think it's more my dad and uncles and me who are are like, you know, wait a minute, get, just let's just let's just back up a second here. He was really smart and he was really good. And and you know what? He wasn't just good. He was great. Yeah. And he was so humble that he probably wouldn't have told you those things. So he's there uh, at Normandy on D-Day and famously that generation of man didn't talk about those experiences. And they no. did it for decades and they didn't until maybe the movie Saving Private Ryan came out and then they started to talk about it. Did your grandfather ever talk about his experiences there? Uh, it's funny that you mentioned Saving Private Ryan. So 
my dad watched that movie with him and he talked a little bit after that. I watched the opening episode of Band of Brothers with him and he, he talked a little bit about it. But for the most part, he would always say that D-Day was like the 4th of July and D-Day, we all know, was not like the 4th of July. It just was what he would say to get people to stop asking about it so he didn't have to continue talking about it. Um, he He didn't talk about it very much with me or any of the other grandkids. I know, you know, Dale tells the story in the film about how grandpa said that um, you know, they they were on the water for 10 days after D-Day and, and the, you know, final nine days of it was pulling the bloated bodies of his fallen comrades out of the water and, you know, how that left a, a, a tremendous mark on him for years to come. I mean, I don't know how it couldn't, right? Um, but he didn't, it was not something that we talked about a lot, but I do know that it really tremendously shaped who he was as a human and I also think, you know, you talk about Grandpa Yogi as a clutch hitter. He's was the most feared hitter in baseball in the last three innings for over a decade. And I think that when you've been through a real life or death situation, coming to the plate in the bottom of the ninth with two outs and the bases loaded, it, that's not life or death. Grandpa only looked at that as opportunity. You know, the, the ducks are on the pond, man. And he was going to bring them in, you know, and uh, and he did that well. But I think that that a lot of that perspective came from going through the war. Uh, how old were you when it hit you that grandpa was famous, that he wasn't just some guy walking down the street, that people knew who he was and not only knew who he was, Lindsay, but they loved him. When did it hit you? I mean, I would say I was probably like 10, 11, 12 no. years old, but by the time, you know, when I was a kid, he was managing the Yankees up until I was uh, six, I think, or seven, right? But I knew, I knew Grandpa was the manager or the coach, manager of the Yankees, whatever he was doing in a particular year. Um, but I didn't know that that job was any different than anybody else's grandpa's job as an accountant or a restaurant chef or a bus driver or whatever the heck they did, right? It just was what Grandpa did for a living. I didn't know that that was strange. Um, and I think also by the time I was old enough to understand that he was that famous guy, he'd already been Grandpa Yogi for so long that Yogi Berra and Grandpa Yogi don't, they coexist in my mind, but they're kind of not the same person, which I mean, I'm 45 years old now. Like I know that Grandpa Yogi is Yogi Berra, but my memories with Grandpa Yogi are making meatballs at the holidays and him burning hot dogs at our family barbecues and watching the fights and watch, going to hockey games and playing wiffle ball in the yard. That's Grandpa Yogi. And then when I talk about the guy who appeared in 18 all-star games and hold, still holds a world series record for hits and that guy, that's Yogi Berra. And uh, again, I know that they're the same person, but they don't often like meet and shake hands in my mind, I say. Lindsay, did you ever get a chance to talk to him about his career? Or was that something that, I mean, you're obviously into sports, you're a terrific sports journalist. Is that something you even wanted to do? Yeah, for sure. I asked grandpa tons and tons. Gran my grandmother used to say I could kill people with questions and I tried to kill grandpa. <laughs> but he was very super modest, super humble. And if you asked him a question like about a World Series or whatever, he was always very quick to kind of change the subject to something Mickey Mantle did or this home run that Roger Maris did or this great game that Whitey pitched or talk about what the team did. Mm -hmm. It was really hard to get him to talk about stuff he did on his own unless you asked him like a super specific pointed question, which which we did, you know. 
And uh, I used to love him. Like my brother always used to love to ask him like what pitchers he had the hardest time with, who could he hit? And grandpa would just be like, it didn't matter what they threw. I could hit them all. You know, <laughs> He just was the most self-confident human being on the planet. And it was really tremendous to watch. You know, when I met you back in 90, no, 2000, we were covering the Stanley Cup finals between Jersey and Dallas. And I didn't know who you were, but I knew the last name. And, you know, Barra stands out, right? Barra is not like Smith or Johnson or Jones. Barra is unique. And sometimes that name can be for the offspring burdensome, or maybe it's a lot to live up to. Was being a Barra for anybody in your family, mom, dad, anybody, Lindsay, was being a Barra ever burdensome? I would say no. I mean, there was a little a bit of time at the beginning of my career where I did not want to cover baseball because I didn't want people to think I got my job because of my last name. So I was covering hockey and tennis and boxing and the Olympics and all this other stuff at ESPN magazine. And like about five years in, my editor in chief at the time was like, "Uh, you grew up with Yogi Berra. You've forgotten more about baseball than most of my writers will ever know. And you need to start covering baseball. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't say I, maybe I took it as a negative there because I didn't want people to think that was why I was employed, but my experience as a Barra has really only been positive. My dad had, you know, tell stories about, um, he was playing for the Marion Mets in the minor leagues and, uh, he was in the on deck circle and some guy was screaming at him, you're never going to be as good as your father. You stink, you know, whatever you'll never, you'll never be able to hit like your dad. And my dad just turned around and said, oh, yeah, neither will you. Right? <laughs> so, you know, like like grandpa being able to let things roll off his back. I think we did that. And but I will say that, yes, he did set the bar tremendously high, less in sports and more in just in the way he lived his life. He had this tremendously forthright moral compass and was just innately able to always do the right thing. And I think a lot of us struggle with that. Like, what's the right thing to do? The right thing to do is not always the easy thing to do. So if you choose to do the right thing, it's often a harder path. And grandpa didn't have to wrestle with those decisions. He just always did the right thing. And I know that I can't always live up to that bar. But in trying to do that, I think that's grandpa's legacy and and just trying to be a better person. I'm getting teary here talking about this. But yeah, I think that's that's the part that's hard to be a bearer because you know what his expectation would be for you. And even though he's been gone for, God, it'll be uh, eight years. I, I still like every day don't want to let him down. Uh, Lindsay, you mentioned something that I can kind of empathize with. My dad's 90 and and I know he's a fallible man. I love him dearly, but you know, he's from New York City and there's a certain standard that I think he set that I'm like, I can't hit it. I just can't. And he certainly had no level of fame that that your grandfather had. But everybody in your family, did they at some point make peace with this idea that you talked about? Like, there's that standard. And I could try to hit it. And it doesn't make me any less of a person if I don't always hit it. Did you have to make peace with that idea that that's the goal? And I may I may just never be, damn it, I just may never be yogi. I think 100% you have to make peace with that or you're going to be beating yourself up all the time because he just was a special person. He was like, Sean Mullen, our director, says it perfectly. He says he was just tapped into some kind of universal truth that not all of us have a line to, right? And 
he he had no filter. He always said what he felt, but what he felt was always right. You know, there was no judgment in him. He he didn't make snap decisions about people. He treated everybody the same. And that's just rare. Like we all are kind of colored by our experiences. And grandpa didn't have that. He just was able to look at you and and side like just accept you for the human that you were and not attach any judgment to it whatsoever. And I think it's one of the reasons his ball players loved him so much, right? You know, they they say managers or players managers or whatever the heck you call it, but yeah. like Uncle Dale tells stories about um, you know, like Dave Rigetti giving up like a, a big hit to blow a game and grandpa knocking on his hotel room door three hours after the game, like, hey kid, are, are you all right? You know, I just want to make sure, you know, that's not, you know, whatever, let it go. Managers don't do that. But grandpa yeah. was always so concerned about who they were as people and making sure that they were okay moving through the world and okay with themselves, you know, that it just came so naturally to him to 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 be like that it's it's incredible and we're not all like that i see in your documentary lindsay you got just about every big notable new york yankee to be in it everybody you know derek jeter mariana rivera i mean everybody don mattingly but the one that you got the interview is not necessarily a yankee but he's a new yorker was vin scully Uh, and i think that was vin scully's last interview was that correct it was. And he was the number one first order of business for me. When I first met Sean Mullen, I was like, Vin Scully, we got to get Vin Scully, Vin Scully, Vin Scully. Have I mentioned we need Vin Scully? <laughs> um, so we started shooting in May of 19. Our first shoot was my Uncle Dale's book signing at the Yoga Bear Museum. And then the second shoot we did was Vin Scully in June of 19 um, out of, in Los Angeles. And I do believe it was the last um, interview he did. But um, he had had started with the Dodgers like in the early fifties and, and basically saw grandpa play his entire career. He was on the mic when Jackie Robinson stole home in 55, when Don Larson threw the perfect game in 56. And he's just like a baseball encyclopedia. So we certainly wanted to have Vin and Vin's voice. And I'm so happy that we were able to get him before he passed away. Billy Crystal may be the most famous New York Yankees fan going. I'm sure there are other ones. But Billy Crystal, is uh, his, his time in the documentary is so sweet and so charming. Lindsay, I can't imagine that was a hard one to get. Did he jump on this chance to, to sit there and to tell stories about Yogi? Yeah, he did. So what was hard about that, though, so we started filming. We filmed for like 10 months, and then we had that little pandemic thing. I don't yeah. know if you remember that, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So the that pandemic thing, we had been in Tampa and we we were on a spring training trip to Florida and we had a great trip. We got Mariano Jeter, um, uh, Hector Lopez, um, Willie Randolph, Guidry, all on that trip. And we come home and two days later, the shutdown happens. Right. So we didn't shoot for like 14 months. And the very first interview we got out of COVID was Billy Crystal. And as if you noticed in the film, that's the only um, interview that's outdoors. It was in Billy Crystal's backyard because we were still with all the precautions and whatnot. Um, but Sean Mullen, our director, jokes that all he had to say was Yogi and Billy just went on for 90 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> but what was really sweet about Billy's interview, too, is that he saw Grandpa play as a young kid. And then he ends up meeting him as an adult and having like a real relationship with him. He was grandpa's friend. So it's nice to see uh, you hear from him as as a fan, but also as someone who had a real personal affection for my grandfather. And it is, you're right, it's very sweet. Uh, so you mentioned some of the statistics. Uh, 
And there was one in there that I didn't even see. Because when I was looking through all these numbers, Lindsay, I just, they're numbers from a different era of baseball, right? Yeah. All those numbers, just the plate appearances alone. That mm-hmm. wouldn't happen in today's game. Uh, 18-time All-Star, three-time MVP, 10 World Series rings. None of those things will happen again. I doubt it in today's game. I doubt it. But what's the one statistic that when you scroll up and down Grandpa's list of achievements is the one where like, holy cow, how did he do this? I mean, I, I, I am always impressed with how little he struck out. The 12 strikeouts in 1950, I think, is possibly the greatest season anyone has ever had. Um, but he, there's one other stat that's not in the film. Um, there's only two guys to to finish in the top four in MVP voting seven years in a row. That's a very sustained level of excellence. And it's Grandpa Yogi and Mike Trout. And obviously there are 50 years in between those two players. So it took a very long time for that to happen again. And Grandpa did that while catching 120 games a year. Um, his durability behind the plate and his ability to produce offensively while being so consistent defensively, I think is unparalleled and will never be duplicated. Uh, Lindsay, a couple more questions. I'll let you go. Baseball's changed a thousand fold, right? Especially now in this last off season where they shoved in some new changes to speed the game up, get the game moving. And one thing we will hear a lot of times as an old timer, I even know what old, yeah, an old timer looks at the game in any game, any game, not just baseball, basketball, football, baseball, whatever. They'll look at the game, Lindsay, and like, wow, these guys are soft. It's not the same game. It's boring. It's watered down. And they're just whining about it because it's not played the way it was when they played in their prime. How how would your dad or how would your grandpa or even your dad, but how did they see the evolution of baseball? Did they still like it? And what, what do you think they would make of the game today? Grandpa watched so many baseball games. I mean, so many. He watched all the Yankee games. He watched all the Cardinals games. He stayed up and watched whatever West Coast game was on. So he was really up on the game and involved in it. And he liked to follow players he liked. He obviously looked at, you know, the Yankees and he loved Derek Jeter and and Jorge Posada, but he loved Yadier Molina. Um, And he he would follow like like, um, folks kids like i remember like he would call craig biggio and find out where where cavin was like you know just to, just so we really? can kind of up on stuff yeah um but um i i remember when and i don't remember exactly the year when they um abolished uh collisions at the plate yeah and grandpa just thought it was ridiculous because he was like these guys are supposed to be so much better athletes than we were when when i played and and if you're such a good athlete, like get out of the way. You you couldn't run me over if you wanted to. You'd you might try, but you'd get my glove in your face and you'd be out. You know, he was so he didn't. He thought that that was silly. Um, I do think that he would like the pitch clock because I know he used to get frustrated with guys, um, you know, futzing with the with the batting gloves and and coming in and coming out of the box. And I he definitely believed that pitchers threw more strikes if they worked quickly, you know, keep yeah. them out of their own heads, you know. So I think he, I don't think he'd have a problem with the pitch clock. I do think he would hate the pizza box bases um, because, again, for the same reason, he didn't like the getting rid of collisions at the plate. Like if you're such a good athlete, why do you need three more inches? Like you're, it's just that that's what I think he would have said. But well, what about you? Um, I mean, you're a baseball fan, baseball person. I, I have my own thoughts about it. Lindsay, what do you think about all baseball as it's played today, including these rules changes? 
I mean, I, I mostly agree with Grandpa. I think they say all the time about how players today are bigger, stronger, faster, more skilled, and how the guys couldn't, the guys back in Grandpa's day couldn't play in today's game. Well, if they're bigger, stronger, faster, and more skilled, why do we have to make all these concessions for them? Why can't they hit to beat the shift? Why can't they lay down a bunt? Why can't they get to a normal size bag? So I, I just, it doesn't jive with me. You can't both be bigger, stronger, faster, and more skilled and need all this handholding. It just doesn't make sense to me. Oh, I could bitch and scream about this all day right there with you. I just, it drives me. And I understand they had to do what they had to do to get the game moving. You've got to sell tickets. You've got to do all that yeah. stuff. It's a, it's a product and I get it. But everything that you just said, I am 100% in line with your thinking. I'm like, these guys are so amazing. Just hit it the other way. Yeah. And you don't. And I just, you're right. Okay. Last question I'm going to ask you. And when you look back, this is kind of a, this is a hard one. But when you look back at your time with your granddad, and like you said, we lost him eight years ago. Lindsay, what are the moments that you that stand out that you cherish the most? Um, so some of my little kid memories, mm -hmm. again, the making the meat, we used to roll like 250 little mini meatballs before Christmas and, and uh, Thanksgiving. And I, I would go over there and he, we'd just have these big giant vats of ground uh, pork, beef and veal, like traditional meatball mix. And we would make little golf size golf ball sized meatballs and my grandmother would put them in a big pot we'd all eat them with toothpicks the next day but rolling the meatballs was grandpa's job and it was always really special if you got to help him um i loved you know the the you know grandpa was gone for up until i was like 14 he was away for the spring and the summer because mm -hmm. he was coaching managing whatever he was doing in baseball so in the winter times he would be around and we'd have you know we'd go over there and you'd still you'd, you'd kind of bundle up and play whatever sport in the front yard he had a croquet set we used to play croquet he would hit the wiffle ball and man you couldn't throw anything by him even when he was like 80 years old he had still had the quickest hands um, and then as I got older, you know, he would take me to a lot of New Jersey Devils hockey games. He got me, he was the one who got me into hockey. We wow. used to watch fights all the time. He was an undefeated boxer in the Navy actually, and got me into watching fights. Um, and you know, watching Seinfeld reruns, just kind of hanging out with him, you know, they're, they're not my memories. The ones that I cherish the most are not like big, you know, earth shattering things. They're just the kind of quiet moments at at home you know i just miss being able to call him on the phone and chat with him about stuff you know well, that's neat that you had that relationship with him he's obviously a very special man not just to you but to millions of other people Lindsay, congratulations for the documentary i know that was a lot of work and i'm sure it's a labor of love but it's still work and uh, congratulations on it it's wonderful seeing you again. And thank you very much for joining me here on this podcast. Thank you Appreciate so it. much. And I do just want to throw in there, since you're in that Dallas-Fort Worth area, the film is opening this weekend in yes. Dallas at yep. the Angelica Film Center and in, in um, Fort Worth at the Modern Art Museum. Um, so that's this Friday, May 26th. And it is in theaters only for the foreseeable future. So everybody's got to get out and go to the movies. All right. Lindsay, thanks so much. I appreciate that plug. I'll make sure to include it again. Thanks a lot, Lindsay. Thank you. Thank you so much. See you later.